sermon series that we're starting on, the resurrection equals hope. And we're taking this, Lord willing, all the way through to Easter, that first week of April, because the resurrection equals hope. Everything that we sung about today, you, you, all you heard was hope, hope, and the power of the resurrection, the power of the gospel. You know, that's what's exciting. But sometimes in life, when things are going well, it's very easy to have hope, is it not? It's very easy, but when things don't go well, what do you do? Everybody goes, okay, you turn to the Lord. Well, what does that even look like? That, to me, that's just such Christianese language. I don't know what turning to the Lord means. I don't know what... You know, praying, like that's just a, okay, what do you, you bow your head? What do you do when people say, when you go and share your faith? What does all that mean? Listen, all I know is this, that the hero of every story in the, in the whole Bible is Jesus. The hero of every story. But we're going to pick up and look at, at these resurrections. I don't know if we're going to get to everything, but we're going to get to the resurrection today, starting with the first resurrection in Scripture that we know of in the Old Testament. And there was a mighty prophet named Elijah. And Elijah was a tremendous man, but he is not the hero of the story. Do you realize Elijah failed? There was a king. His father was so wicked that his father, the word says in 1 Kings 16, as I paraphrase, that he was so wicked that he did more sins than any of the other kings of Israel. But then he had a son named Ahab, and Ahab did more than his father. His, he, in fact, he was so wicked, he married a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel didn't just mean that she was cray-cray. Her name actually meant that she was the husband of Baal. That she was married to Baal, that storm-false Canaanite, Canaanite, fake god, more than, than she was to her own husband Ahab. And her father, Ethbal, which means with Baal, I mean, he like names his daughter after this fake God. I mean, that's the type of queen or, or of, of Israel that was going on. So, I mean, it was in a bad shape. Then the whole thing was in disarray. So Elijah shows up on the scene and he says, listen, he says, it's not going to rain until I pray again. It's not until I pray for rain, it's not going to rain again. And so for about three and a half years, there's no rain and it gets crazy. And there's, a, there's such a drought and there's such a famine that God says, listen, Elijah, it's going to be bad. You're going to need to go. So God sends him on the other side of the promised land into where the people like were in exile are going to go in exile. He goes up there and, he, and he, he is fed by ravens. Bread and meat. Bread and meat. It's like a coded exodus. You can go back and read it and it follows just like Moses in Exodus. It's brilliant. And then all of a sudden God says, okay, now I'm going to send you to this widow's house. And we don't even have her name in scripture. But God sends him to this widow's house. He goes back into the promised land. He goes back kind of north uh, towards near Nazareth would be and to the left right near the sea. And he goes back in to this Canaanite woman in the middle of the promised land. And she's a widow. And he walks up on her and he's like, listen, uh, what are you, what's going on? She says, I'm giving you some sticks. I got a little bit of bread, a little bit of oil, and I'm going to make it. And then, we're, uh, and then my son and I are going to die. I mean, that's how bad the famine is. And he's like, no, no, it's not, you're not going to die. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to make me something first. Sounds kind of selfish in a sense, but it's a trust, faith thing. And he says, the jar of oil that you have, it's not going to run out until it rains again. And sure enough, just like the man of God says, that happens. Because here it was in a Canaanite woman in this foreigner in Israel. She's blessed and all the Israelites are not. 
So it's a new low. Israel has sunk to a new low. They have. The king is so wicked. He's done more wickedness than anybody else in, in, in his fathers. That he marries a woman who's attached to a false god. Husband of Baal. Terrible time. A new look. First Kings 17. Let's pick up and see what happens. This is going to be really good. First Kings 17. By the way, all the notes on summitcharleston.com, uh, Summit Church, and Facebook. You got it? First Kings 17. A new low. It's a new low. A new low in Israel. And here's something happens. So now this, this woman who's a foreigner in Israel has experienced a miracle because she has food when nobody else has by a miracle of God. Then something happened. We're picking up in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 15. And that's after he said, the jug of oil will not run out until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Verse 15. She went away. This is all we have in Scripture. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. Here is this foreign woman living in the land of Israel, and she has sustenance, and nobody else does. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Verse 17. Here we go, saints. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Let me just stop for a moment. Notice what Elijah is saying. Sovereignty of God. Even his death was under your control. Really thick verse. Verse 21, then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Father, we will never know the truth until we know the power of the resurrection. And I can feel your spirit within me.
So I pray today, Lord, that I won't say anything or do anything outside of your perfect will and that you would minister to us today so that we will know that where the grave might come, it has no victory because of Jesus Christ. O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Jesus did it all. So a new love brings a new opportunity, Lord, because of Jesus. That is the hope of the resurrection. So we worship you. Forgive us, Lord, so we can hear you clearly speak, magnify, Lord, in a powerful way so that we would be drawn into the presence of your glory. And then, Lord, that we might be reflectors of that as people see Jesus in us. Transform us that our heart burns for nothing else but Jesus so that whatever we put our hands to, we don't look back. We give everything we have because the very name of Jesus is riding on it. Nothing else, nothing else, nothing else but you. We worship you and we praise you and we love you. And the saints said, what? Man, I don't know. I'm already stoked. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm so, I apologize. I ain't scared. I, I ain't. Y'all wait today? Go eat a donut. All right, here we go. So here's the only point I got today. Because of the hope of the resurrection, a new low, a new low, I think John Selhammer was talking about that in Israel this time, wonderful God. It's a new low. A new low brings a new opportunity. I want you to know in the name of Jesus, every new low brings a new opportunity. Hey, listen, I want everybody in this room to win and win all the time. I love winning. I'm a competitor. I love to compete. That's all I want to do is compete. It's a constant battle of my flesh. I want to go back and coach all the time. I want to go to Israel with you so bad I can't taste it. I just need I just want to go and work with you this summer in Israel and, and coach and teach and lead those people to Jesus and y'all are going give me life in the middle of the craziness over there. I want to go. I want to go. I want to do stuff because I'm telling you, I just want to compete. And so this fire burns in me that I want to compete for Jesus. Like it's, it's, a, it's a competition for me. I don't know if this is the way the Lord's wired me, but I, I want you to know that even if we don't win, you still win in Jesus. You might say, well, that doesn't, that's just like a condolence. I'm not giving you a condolence. I'm giving you a fact. This isn't to make anybody feel good. This is the truth of the gospel of Jesus. That a new low brings a new opportunity. So, but John, I'm not in a new low. You're right. Right now, God is blessing us with this opportunity to win, to test us. If we will, if we will believe the praise of men, or will reflect the praise of men into the glory of God. The Bible says you're tested by the praise you receive. So what are we doing in this? So what happens is right now, a new low brings a new opportunity. So what does a new low feel like? Go with me to 1 Kings 17, verse 18. So, she, um, excuse me, she said to Elijah, this is, I could not even get past this verse, like, you can't see it, but I was like, highlighting, I just can't get past it, like, it's just burning in me. Here's what it says, Woo, this is so good. Her son dies, she got him in her arms, like, this is her new low. It's a new normal, family, a new normal. A new, my brother wrote this thing. He sent a text to all, uh, my older, one of my older brothers sent a text to all of our family. My, my father died 10 years ago, um, Friday. And so he sent this, he sent this text out. It's like, like this love letter to, our, to, to, to my earthly father. And it was beautiful. And like my, my sister, my twin sister, and then his twin sister uh, text back in a group text. And he says, he said, uh, you know, like, we can't even read it because we're crying, you know. And I, inside, I'm going, 
It didn't bring me tears. Like it just reminded me of the power of God. Because a new low is a new normal for people, and they don't know how to raise them. Y'all know the psychology behind that. A new normal, somebody's death happens, or uh, a traumatic injury in your life, or a breakup, so it's a new normal, and then your mind tries to race around it because your mind always asks this question, why did this happen to me? Why, why, why? And you don't get an answer to the why, Job. Job, did he ever get an answer? No. Because the answer will come in the presence of the Trinity. Right now we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Jesus is seated at the right hand. God the Father is in heaven. When we get in the presence of the Trinity, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we know in part, then we should know fully as we're fully known. But it's a test of our faith to see that if God really is the overcomer of what he said he's going to do. And so there's this nuance. So then all the psychoses, the neuroses, sets in, right, in that gap of where our mind gets stuck in the new normal. And so there's this, there's this gap, and that's where depression and everything, it just gets stuck in this land. And I want to tell you something. A new low is a new opportunity. This is a new low for her. This is a new normal for her. Her son is dead. This is what she says. What do you have against me? Man of God. Immediately, her mind went to the judgment of God instead of the deliverance of the coming Messiah. We do not have to think judgment language. What do you have against me, men of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? What does a new low look like? Right there. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Not only is her son dead, but she is now somehow, someway saying that her sin brought about this terrible death. And she was reminded of her problems and her pain. Is even God against me? That's what she's asking. Does that ever happen to you when something happens bad around you? Or do you, do you ever ask this? Is God even against me? Like, God, do you not even care? Like, I have the sickness, you don't even care? Like, what's up with this, you don't even care? Like, are you even against me? That's what she's asking. A new low equals a new, a new what, saints? Opportunity. A fresh wound takes away the great memories of the past the Lord showed me. Oh, that was good. Pain erases hope. That was really good. You want to know how I know? How was she eating? How was she eating? Where did the bread and the oil come from? Right? God. God was blessing her family. She was eating. Like there was a miracle. There's this, there's this oil and it just never stopped. It's like the five loaves and the two fish. I mean, every time Jesus goes in for the basket, it just never, it never empties. Like this is what's going on in her life. Like pain erases the last thing God did. So if something happens to somebody you love, that pain erases the very thing that God has done, the great things that God has done. And so then we're over here, we're supposed to be saying this language as a, as a Christian. God, if you don't do anything else, you've already done enough because your work on the cross is more than enough. Like that's the language we're supposed to say. Then over here on this side, when something happens to somebody or happens to somebody that, that we love or maybe even to us, we turn around and say, why God? See, because pain erases hope. Pain erases all the blessings of the past. Just when I thought my past was behind me, she's got me thinking, did Jesus come to remind me of my sin? The Hebrew word there, so that it says, did you come to remind me of the sin? The, the word there, if you want to circle that, the word means to remember. 
I remember my sin. Like she, maybe, maybe she had her, she's a widow, so her husband died. Maybe she had a story past. I don't know her past, but obviously there was sin in her past because we can concur, or we can conclude, and we can deduce logically that something happened in her past that there was sin. Maybe she's reminded that she did, she's away from God and all this other stuff. I, I, I don't know what happened, but she, there's this pain. There's this pain that we see. Did Jesus come to remind me of my sin? The word there is remember. Uh, let me read it in the New American Standard. Uh, I think Brandy might put that up there for us. The New American Standard Bible, I kind of Bible, cut my teeth on it in seminary. Said, so she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity. Now that's much more accurate Hebrew language than the NIV I was quoting. If you know, I love that because it's written on fifth grade level and it's easy for me to memorize. But none of that's the thing that you're there. Right, so the idea is, is that to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. The word iniquity there, the word iniquity, iniquity in the Hebrew language means this word. And some of you that are theologians understand this. It means depravity. In other words, she's reminded that she is totally depraved. She, that means that's fancy theological words for this, that she is bent towards sin. It does not mean that she has taken sin to the nth degree. Like, it doesn't mean that she's taken sin as to the farthest place in her life, that she's just become so sinless that, oh my word, we would look at her and go, oh, you belong on death row. We, we're not saying that because here, I want to give you some scripture. What I mean, I'm, I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote uh, uh, Millard Erickson. We do not mean total depravity that an unregenerate, that is unsafe person, is totally insensitive to the matters of conscience. I'm not saying that she wasn't sensitive to the matters of her conscience, of right and wrong. Total depravity does not mean that sin, a sinful person is as sinful as possible. For example, I'm going to give you the scripture to back this up. I'm not just making this stuff up. Romans 2.15. You'll see it up here. Romans 2.15 says this. They, meaning, he was using Gentile words there in verse 14 for meaning unsaved. They showed the requirements of the law written on their hearts. Their consciences, notice this word conscious. I didn't say the Spirit of God, I said a conscience. Totally different. The Spirit is dead. This is the conscience. Okay, moral majesty, whatever you want to call it. The conscience there, he says this. Their consciences also bearing witness. And their thoughts, Sometimes accusing them. Look at what look at what Paul's writing. Look at the word. Sometimes the thoughts of an unsaved person accuses them. You know that lie was a lie, right? They might think, you know, I, I, should, I maybe maybe I, I shouldn't have done what I did. You know that was really bad how I treated my friend or my family member or my sweetmate or my grandchild or my husband or man, you know, like an unsaved person can feel can feel guilt. They can feel a conviction. And in other words, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. And notice, notice the whole paradox here. Sometimes an unsafe person can feel the weight of that was wrong. That's not right. You know, you shouldn't cheat on somebody. And then over here, their unsaved heart can also feel my good works mean I'm good. <laughs> you know what it says? Come on, are y'all with me today? Or are y'all just thinking? Or you're just dreaming? Like, hurry up, John. All right, so, look, it says, accusing them, other times even defending them. 
So sometimes people that don't know Christ are walking around saying, I am good. I am good because I have done good works. I want you to, I want to read this to you. The Lord was showing me, and then I read this in the Lord, Erickson, and I was like, oh, but it just, it made sense. There's a difference between actions that are, in quotes, in conformity with God's will, that are pleasing to God, and actions that give us merit. Oh, that was good. Are y'all awake on that one? Are you, are you awake? Because that was really good. There's a difference between, listen, people that don't know Jesus, that are not saved, they, they can actually do God's will along. Check it out in the Old Testament. People that are not saved, Nebuchadnezzar, can actually do the will of God, but they are not good works that bring merit. But what happens that they that we think people think because I do a good work, therefore I am good. Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, people are going to say to him, "Did we prophesy in your name? That's a good word. Did we cast out demons in your name? That's a good word." Jesus will say, "Depart from me, you workers of what iniquity? I never knew you." Good works don't mean good worth. We're all in. Everyone that's born is born with the prince of sin. It means this. Like, for example, I remember, um, and do not judge me, do not judge me. Especially y'all. Okay, when I was suspended in high school, a couple of times. Um, I hope my mother doesn't listen to this because she brings up all the bad memories. Okay, listen. So I'm in the principal's office, Bobby Farr's office, and he called my mom and dad and said, I'm going to have to suspend John. But he gets to play in the football game Friday. So that's great, coach. I can be suspended and still play. And so, praise God. And so, what happens is this. The rest of the day, do you think I acted out or I got straight? Come on. Well, I really wanted to. But I, I because I didn't like the teacher, but I had a fear of my father. Because he had a belt. And I was afraid of the belt when I was afraid of him. You see, I figured I was bigger and stronger than him, and I could take him. That I got, but for some reason, in my unsaved heart, I knew in my conscience that it wasn't right for me to take him out. So what I knew I had to do was I had to submit to the discipline that he had. That was the right thing to do. So the rest of the day, I behaved in high school because I knew the punishment was coming. But my good behavior after my judgment did not change my judgment. For all have sinned and fall short of the Come on. For the wages of sinners, the judgment of God has been issued. It doesn't matter how good we act for the rest of our lives. It doesn't change the judgment of God. And she knew it. She knew it. Check this. Genesis 6, 5. Puts it this way. You don't have to turn there. You just write it down with your note, phone, whatever you're using. Genesis 6, 5 says this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. That is what total depravity is. It's the idea that there's no way that we can break from our sin. You say, yes it is, John. I stopped drinking. Yeah, but you didn't stop lying. That's pretty good. 
stop gluttony. I'm, you know, I, there's a problem. I don't have to talk to y'all to get right? I'm attracted to donuts. Like, it's God donuts in my family. Don't judge me. You're there too. And those chocolate donuts are really good out there. Some of you want John to stop talking about it. I'm so hungry. I'm so starving myself. Well, that's your fault. I'm just saying, like, I'm hungry. You know, you can't be bringing that stuff in because I'm sinning. Brandon, I'm sinning. You know, I just, like, I see it and I want more and I want more. My problem is I can't stop my sin except Jesus. That's what it means by this. That's what he's saying there. Is that my heart is on evil continually. It means there's no end or break to my sin the Lord was showing me. In other words, the old statement is, remember that old pastor said this, and people quote a thousand, you know, it takes us further than we want to go, costs us more than we want to pay, and longer than we want to stay. That's what sin does. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. To show you it's not just an Old Testament flavor, uh, Genesis 4, 18 and 19 says this. They are darkened. This is John Davis before I got saved at 18. They are uh, the summer before my freshman year in college. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. See, my heart, in my heart, there was always an say, there was always an improper element or motive. I would do good things, but I was really doing good things so that I would be good, or look good, or to appease conviction. There was an improper motive. In other words, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And every time we sin, we get harder, and we get harder, and we get harder, and we get harder, having lost all sensitivity. In other words, we can see people changed by the gospel right here, and it doesn't even affect us. We just feel nothing. We're apathetic. We just have no feelings. We're just not no motivation, just nothing. We're just kind of going through it. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a, and this is what's amazing, with greediness. And I want to put it this way. Let me just give you give me what this example says. The, the word greediness means a continual, one version says it this way, a continual lust for more. That's what greediness is. Greediness is a continual lust for more. In other words, we can't stop sin. We can't stop. Though we might not act on it, we think it. Though we might think it uh, and not do it, you know, we want it. It becomes a desire. There's a continual lust for more. So Jesus said it's better to fall on the rock and be broken than for the rock to fall on you and be crushed. And so what did we do? The moment I heard the gospel, that I fell on the rock of Jesus and my heart was broken and it was in so many pieces, it couldn't be fixed. And you know what happened, God says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of what, saints? Flesh. You get it. Because that's total depravity. That's the idea behind it. So before the moment of salvation and regeneration, could we feel uh, uh, justification? Could we feel conviction? The answer is yes. Even people that are not saved, I just showed you scripture, Romans 2.15, even they can be convicted in the, by their conscience and say that's not right. But that doesn't equal change or break away from the sin. Though, as Matt Chandler said, the whole point of the cross is that we're going to fail. We're going to stumble. We're going to feel dirty. It's going to feel awkward. The whole point of the cross is this mighty picture of love. And that is what God has done for us. He loved us so much that he sent his sin because only Jesus can stop the traveling. 
Only Jesus can step in and change everything. So after salvation, we must feel freedom and hope because we have a new heart and we see things in a new way, in new eyes, in a new life. Or as in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 would say, we're a new creation. Old things are gone. Behold, all things are what saints? New. That's what the idea behind this is. So now the widow back there in verse 18, the, uh, the widow, she sees this and, and she thought her sins would bring judgment. But the difference was, the difference was because Elijah reminded her of the presence of God, there was still an inkling of hope. As long as the presence of God is around us, there's still an inkling of hope. As long as there's Jesus, there's still an inkling of hope. Because the Holy Spirit was on him. The widow's son was her only hope. And now he was taken from her because women were property during that time. And he was a male and he could get a job and he could take care of her mom. He was the hope of the future when the drought ended. And now he was gone. And she knew that the man of God was not going to stay. So therefore she was done. You know what's interesting about this passage is this passage is also in Luke chapter 4. Did y'all know that? It's in Luke chapter 4. And, this, and, and Jesus, Jesus goes there to his hometown, stands up in the synagogue. The synagogue is like a satellite uh, corporate worship there because the temple is the main place, but it was a satellite where they could read the scroll. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read and he reads that this is the year of the Lord's favor. And all of a sudden, the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and the, you know, the blind are going to see, right? The lame are going to walk and the person who said, I was captive, set free. This language, this Messiah language. And he said, today has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people are like, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? And then he reminds them. He says, look at this. Go to, go to look, uh, if you don't mind, I'm putting that look up four, look four up there so they can see this. This is so powerful. Look four, verse 23. They said, it is Joseph's son in 22. And then in 23, they said, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. I'm in chapter four, look four, verse 23. Physician, heal yourself, and, and you will tell me. Do you hear in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum? Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He's saying like Elijah was rejected in the nation of Israel and had to go to this Canaanite widow, this person who was the outcast of the outcast in society, and only she received him. I also assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, that's his, the prophet after him. Uh, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. That means an ex, a person that's not Jewish. Uh, all the people in the synagogue when they were uh, were furious when they heard this, they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then the Lord showed me when I read it, and I told you this, those who know you the best can hurt you the most. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Why? It's not his time to die. I may have to see a divine, like the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't even touch him. 
And they took him through the cliff. They're crawling all over the cliff and then stoning right because they throw stones at people so they don't touch the person that represents sin. You see the ideology behind that. They don't touch the sin so that they become dirty. Or they stay with sin. So that's what he's talking about. He's being sent to that. So here, the question, when, when the family rejects us, it's one of the deepest pains we can feel because a new load. And Jesus brings a new opportunity. So here's the question. How do we fight for faith? How do we fight? I'm going to ask Bobby if you come over here and just kind of play over us because now one of my favorite songs is it's in all the songs by Planet Shakers, the anthem, and, and it just continually ministers to my heart. So, as I read this, and I just kind of want him to play, play over us. And if you don't mind, if the Lord leads you, play whatever. Play that and you're right with the Lord. Um, how, how, how do we fight for faith? Like, how do we fight for the hopelessness? How? What's the application? What's What's the handle that we got this new load that I have a new opportunity? How can we believe there's a new opportunity in Jesus? Well, the first way, I want to give you this quickly. The first way is you've got to be reminded of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. I want you to look back with me in 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16 and verse 29. I'm just going to work through this fast and maybe skip a verse or two. But in verse 29 it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, he means his father's, his name means father's brother. Listen, I know what you're saying. Why do you say all these names, what they mean? Listen, father's brother. His father, if you read up a couple of verses, Brother Omri was like the most wicked king ever. And so he's like his father's brother. He's wicked. So Ahab, uh, the son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil. So his son did more evil than his father. In the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. That's the guy who started all this problem in Israel when the kingdom split. Son of, of Nebat. But he also married Jezebel. Remember her name? It means Bel is husband to. Daughter of Ethbel or Baal. Ethbal. Uh, Eth means with Bel. King of Sidonians and he began to surveil and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. The nation is at a new low, family. As John Hammer would say, a new low. It's a new low, but a new low is a new opportunity when God is still in control. And he reminds us, check this out. And they had time. Hail of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. This is how bad it got. Jericho was destroyed. And Joshua put a curse on it. Joshua said, Whoever rebuilds Jericho, Jericho, uh, and, and when he builds the foundation, his firstborn son is going to die. And when he places the gates, his um, his last son is going to die. In other words, the whole son's name, the whole name of the family is going to be wiped out. And Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel, he built Jericho. He laid his foundations at the cost of the firstborn son of Abiram. And he set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sugu. In accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Lowest, 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 lowest point. Verse 7, chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, he said to the king of Israel, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. God is saying, I am sovereign. I want you to know today that whenever there is a new load, there's always a new opportunity because Jesus still reigns. And then here's the second application. 
One, we can trust you. You're still in control. Two, give you your hopelessness. I want you, if you don't get anything, show you what happened. Go back there with me in the, in the uh, first Kings 17, verse 19. What did he say to the widow who was carrying her dead son? He said, give me your son. Give me your son. That Hebrew word that means set, set it on Jesus. Elijah replied, he took him from her arms and what did he do? Carry. That's what Jesus does for us. He carries us. The idea of carry there, it's interesting. The idea of the word carry in Hebrew means to ascend. Not only does he ascend to an upper room, but it reminded me of the Holy Spirit just said, Psalm 24, John, you're right. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And who does not swear or lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God and Savior. The word for vindication is righteousness. We can only get the righteousness of Jesus from Jesus. Let him carry. Let him carry it. Give your hopelessness to him. Give the pain to him. Give the struggle to him. And let him carry it. Because here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is not going to just take it from you. He's going to carry it right to the Father. The Trinity is always working in congruence. See, that's what Jesus is for us. He's the one who can carry everything today. Listen, 1 John 2, 1 says this. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But check this out. If any, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. We get the righteousness of Him. He is the righteous. He's an advocate. He's our defense attorney. He's the one who does it. So we set it on him, the hopelessness. We set it on him, and then he carries it. He ascends to the hill of the Lord. We can't. Only Jesus can. And once he died and rose again, it opened the door for us to go in to the very presence of God. Because of his righteousness. Then in verse 20, look what it says there. Verse 19, verse 18, 17, 19. He took him in his arms, carried him to the upper room, and was standing, laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to him. Elijah is not the hero Jesus is, but he's a forerunner. He's a forerunner, the New Testament tells us. He's a forerunner to Jesus. And he cries out on our behalf. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, saved and unsaved. Unsaved for your salvation. Saved from the very will of God that God has put in front of you. We have an advocate, and he is crying out on our behalf. Remember, the Trinity is always working together. Romans 8, 26 says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Then in verse 44, it says, Who is He that condemns us? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, and it says this, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Elijah cried out to the Lord. 
The Bible says he cried out to the Lord. The New Testament tells us the Spirit and Jesus are interceding for us right now as we give him the dead things that are bringing us hopelessness in our life, the dead things that are bringing us hurt. We give them over to him, the relationship, the finance, whatever it might be, well, what is in the world, all those things we give to him. We give to Jesus. We just give to Jesus because not only did he save us from our depravity, but he raises us to set us free to live for him. And in 1 Kings 17, it says, that he, verse 20, that he cried out to the Lord. Verse 21, that he stretched out himself on the boy. How many times, saints? I didn't hear you. How many times, saints? He laid upon death three times. How many days did Jesus lay upon death? You have won the victory. 
Alleluia. Turn it off for me. Death could not hold you down. You are the risen king. Seated in majesty.
Lord, if there's someone in this room, which I believe there are, they don't know Jesus. There's nothing I can say to them. There's nothing I can say to bring them to accept that they stand condemned, that their good works don't equal good merit. And though their heart justifies them now, that is not the Spirit of God that's justifying them. That is their flesh thinking they're good enough and they're not going. And I don't know how to communicate it any more effective except to say that there's only one who is and his name is Jesus and you have to be willing to lay everything down to follow him. You have to repent and turn away and come to the one who is life. Lord, they don't realize that everything they're doing in their life is leading them to death. Though it's an immediate gratification, the end, it leaves them empty and void and hopeless. Pray to come to Jesus today. And for all of us and the saints in this room, God, there's something we need to ask you to carry. God, you know my heart right now. There's a lot of things I need you to carry. Decisions you're going to have to make. Pictures you're going to have to make very clear to me. The pain and the brokenness of the people that have asked me to intercede for them. Lord, I want to be just like Elijah, and I just want to give it to you and let the Spirit and Jesus carry it right to you, Father. Hallelujah to your name, Lord. You're so worthy. You're so great. You're so wonderful. Praise the Lord. You have won victory. God, I pray, move us out of our seats and into a position of prayer.